I like the expression of calling Bayraktar TB2s as the flying Kalashnikov, the flying AK-47 or, or drones. Uh, easy to maintain, easy to operate. This is the first time that these drones are being tested not only against Russian systems, but also against Russian systems in the hands of the Russian military. Welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI. And in this episode, we are talking about a really fascinating subject. I can almost guarantee that virtually every person listening to this has by now heard of the TB2 Bayraktar. It's a Turkish-made unmanned aircraft that has made a lot of headlines as the Ukrainian military has used it very effectively against Russian forces since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But beyond those headlines, there's a really interesting story to be told about the Bayraktar. To tell that story, I'm joined in this episode by Dr. Chan Kasapolu. He is the director of the Security and Defense Studies Program at ADAM, a Turkish think tank, and is a non-resident fellow at the Jamestown Foundation. He explains what forces drove the development of both the Bayraktar and other unmanned vehicles by Turkey's defense industry, discusses the aircraft's strong performance in Ukraine and other recent conflicts, and examines what that performance might tell us about drones and the future of war. Before we get to the discussion, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it and you have just a moment, please consider giving it a rating or leaving a review. It really does help new listeners to find us. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with John Casapolo. John, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Thanks for having me. So I asked you to come on the podcast to talk about um, a particular system that uh, I'm sure all of our listeners are are familiar with by now because of its role in the ongoing war in Ukraine. That is the TB2 Bayraktar drone. Uh, as I'm sure most people are aware, it's a Turkish drone. And, and you wrote a really fascinating report published by the Atlantic Council, uh, I believe in March, essentially on the Turkish way of drone warfare. And you know, so while we're all seeing headlines pretty regularly coming out of Ukraine, uh, reporting on on successful kinetic strikes by the TB2, there's this really important, I think, context about this particular aircraft. Uh, some of the strategic forces that are kind of influencing, uh, or that influenced its development, um, you know, how its success in in Ukraine, but also in other recent conflicts, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about, how that success is being perceived in Turkey and. And I guess more broadly, kind of what we can infer about the future of drones on the battlefield from the way it's being uh, employed in in Ukraine. I know that's a lot, um, but I definitely think there's some value uh, for listeners, certainly, I hope, uh, in sort of taking the conversation about this particular platform beyond the kind of, you know, range and armament and endurance and what have you that... Um, that frankly, you know, is, is, is easily available on, you know, on the Bayraktar's Wikipedia page, for instance. Before we get to all of that, though, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually curious. You direct the Security and Defense Studies Program at ADAM, uh, a Turkish think tank. When did you uh, and the organization begin looking at this subject? You know, the role of drones in, in sort of Turkish strategic culture and, and what was the driving force behind, uh, behind that increased interest? So 
the, the drone warfare within the, the realm of Adam's defense research program goes back to the, the, the first Turkish uh, operations in Syria. Actually, before that, we have seen Turkish drones taking part in counterterrorism operations within the Turkish territory against the PKK. Uh, but the, the, the first, if you like, the, 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 the first breakthrough of Turkish drone warfare it roots back to 2016 Operation Euphrates Shield, when a NATO nation for the first time deployed conventional combat formations against ISIS. Uh, we, we saw Turkish drones, especially Bayraktar TB2s and Anka, uh, taking part in that operation. Uh, but it was not a principal role, it was more of a supporting uh, role, uh, taking a back seat. Then came 2018 Operation Olive Branch against PKK YPG. And at that point, we have seen uh, that Bayraktar TB2 and Anka uh, both taking part very actively in Turkish operations in terms of kinetic strikes and also uh, intelligence surveillance, target acquisition and reconnaissance assets uh, for Turkish artillery and multiple launch rocket systems. Uh, then came 2020, which was, I, I would call it the golden year uh, of Turkish drone warfare. It started with the Turkish punitive operation against Syrian Arab army, uh, Operation Spring Shield. Uh, you know, the, the, the Syrian airspace was really dangerous uh, for manned aircraft due to dense uh, surface air missile systems, and especially with the presence of Russian aerospace forces there. Uh, so uh, to launch the punitive operation upon the, uh, the killing of uh, 36 Turkish troops by the uh, by the Syrian Arab army and the Russian aerospace forces, uh, Turkey predominantly relied on standoff fires, both uh, via land forces, multiple launch rocket systems and artillery, and also uh, standoff munitions from manned and unmanned aircraft. And it was the unmanned aircraft that entered the Syrian airspace. So that was the time that we saw uh, Turkish drones, both Bayraktar and Anka, being very effective. Uh, particularly against Syrian air defenses. And I think that went beyond uh, sporadic targeting of air defense systems. Uh, it was a systematic pattern that we, we saw for the first time, maybe in military history, that uh, suppression of enemy air defenses campaign with a very high attrition rate uh, on, on the adversary uh, was carried out uh, by unmanned platforms. Uh, then uh, throughout the year came uh, Libya, the Turkish success in, in the Turkish system success in, in Libya uh, against uh, General Haftar's forces. And again, at the time we saw uh, Bayraktar TB2s being effective against uh, Russian Panzers, uh, low to mid altitude air defense systems. Uh, but the, the, the rising star moment maybe was uh, in the same year Nagorno Karabakh war. The Azerbaijani armed forces used Bayraktar TB2, uh, I would say more or less mimicking or following the footsteps of Turkish Operation Spring Shield in Syria. So what do I mean by that? They use drones, Bayraktar TB2s, uh, systematically against uh, Armenian uh, formations, Russian and Soviet-made air defense systems. Uh, they use them in kinetic strikes against land warfare equipment, uh, but also they use uh, these uh, these drones, Turkish and Israeli-made drones, within a meaningful uh, battle network and, and, and operational planning uh, for ISTAR, uh, Intelligence Surveillance, Target Acquisition and Reconnaissance 
uh, in support of uh, fires. Uh, we saw that they also use these assets for uh, psychological and information operations. The Azerbaijani Minister of Defense Twitter account was bombarded literally by drone footage uh, obtained from or from the fight on the ground. Uh, and and th- this is more or less the background that our research covered in a, in a gradually intensifying fashion uh, these drone warfare assets. So going back a little further, I'd like to ask you uh, maybe a bit about the emergence of drones in Turkish strategic culture. You mentioned several of the uh, of the examples in recent years of Turkish drones, including the TB2, being used effectively on the battlefield. Um, but is there something that explains their their development and and what at least seems to be a, a degree of of prioritization of drones in particular? In your report, you use the word dronization, uh, and you talk about the robotization of Ankara's strategic options. Can you describe? I guess, can you describe what, you know, Turkish strategic culture's sort of maybe fundamental characteristics, the the sort of traditions that shape it? And, and then what specifically was it that lent itself to incorporating drones into that culture? Well, that's a great one. That That's a great one, especially you, you brought forward Turkish strategic culture and how drone warfare and the drone break or the dronization of Turkish military capabilities fit in that context. Uh, Military, not as an institution only, but also as a pillar of statecraft, has traditionally been uh, at the epicenter of Turkish strategic culture. The use of military force in addressing security threats, uh, use of military uh, capacity uh, to back diplomacy, sometimes pioneer uh, diplomacy. Uh, we have an imperial uh, and a deep-rooted historical military tradition in Turks. Uh, I mean, just just to give uh, a striking example for the, the post podcast listeners, for the audience, uh, the Turkish Air Force is older than the Republic. The Turkish Navy is older than the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and brace for impact, the Turkish Army, the land forces in our lexicon, is older than Islam or Christianity. It is. It is. But by the way, I'm I'm I'm, I'm referring to the official, uh, you know, background that you can. Google right now, go to the official website and, and see history. Uh, so we have a we, we have a military tradition rooting back to millennia. Uh, and uh, this craft, uh, this capability, the warfighting capability has always been really uh, vital uh, to, to, the, to the Turkish strategic culture. It is not only a historical fact to, to talk about uh, for an interesting check, uh, for an interesting chat, but it is... Look at the Turkish foreign policy and the way of Turkish handling security uh, problems. Back in 1990s, the exodus of PKK's leader Abdullah Hocalan. Uh, it happened because of a military pioneer pressure campaign on Hafez al-Assad. Uh, back in 1974, Turkey launched a joint campaign uh, to the island of Cyprus uh, for the Turkish community there, for protecting the Turkish community there. Uh, during the 1990s, we have seen non-stop cross-border counterterrorism operations. And when both ISIS and PKK threats uh, emanated from Syria, the, the first and foremost toolbox of the Turkish statecraft was resorting to military means and, uh, and launching consecutive military operations. As I said, Turkey has so far has been the one and only NATO nation that, uh, that uh, deployed conventional formations. I mean, like brigades within the army doctrine law order of battle against the ISIS threat. 
so uh, reforming the African proverb, the, the famous African proverb, I also use that in my report, Turkey likes to carry a big stick and likes to carry it and uh, does not like to speak softly uh, all the time. And it, it is a tradition. It is a tradition within our strategic culture. How drone warfare relates to that is important because throughout the history, uh, we talk about uh, not only Turkish warfighting skills and, and, and uh, operational planning capabilities, but also technological edge. I mean, like during the conquest of Istanbul, the Turkish design and production of artillery systems was really state of the art. But for a long time, we did not have anything uh, state of the art, anything high end in the battlefield made in Turkey, made by designed and made by the Turkish engineers that we could be proud of. So, I mean, for a long time, we fought, uh, we fought well, but we fought with others' weapons uh, in, in, in the battlefield. So drone warfare and actually the, the, the dronization uh, of uh, Turkish arsenal and introduction of advanced systems like Bayraktar TB2, Anka, and now even more advanced systems like Akıncı and Aksungur gives us uh, something that, that resonates with the, the military pronunciation in the Turkish strategic culture. Now we have a, a, a military and armed forces that we are proud of because of its warfighting skills, but we also have weapon systems, indigenous and national weapon systems that we are proud of their combat effectiveness in, in, in the different battlegrounds ranging from Libya to Syria to Nagorno-Karabakh and, and to Ukraine very, very lastly. Uh, this is important. And another important point is, uh, you know, Turkey has not been on the winning side of the industrial revolution. So we can talk about Turkish drones right now. But if you ask me about the Turkish main battle tank, and we know that main battle tanks have been on, uh, on the battlefield, they've been around for more than a century. I would say that if everything goes all right, if everything goes as planned and things did not go as planned so far, uh, maybe in, in five years we will be receiving indigenous Turkish main battle tanks. If you ask me about Turkish combat aircraft, a principal fighter aircraft, I would say most probably we're going to see 2030s uh, to see the indigenous Turkish uh, fighter aircraft uh, manning the, the squadrons of the Air Force. Uh, but, you know, the Turkish industry right now with unmanned systems, with robotic warfare systems, if I'm using the right the right expression to depict it, is, is surfing on the waves of the new age uh, warfighting technologies by robotic systems, unmanned systems, drones, uh, to appeal and to address general audience here. Drones are cool things to, to talk about. They are new, they are more shiny than manned systems, like good old artillery main battle tanks, although we have seen in Ukraine that artillery did a, a really good job. Uh, but again, it is a force multiplier because, again, referring to Ukraine, we have seen that artillery with drone uh, is a different beast. And we have seen that movie before in Nagorno-Karabakh and, and Syria with the Turkish operations and the Azerbaijani campaign. Uh, we we all remember what happened to that uh, poor Jordanian pilot during the anti-ISIS operations when he ejected and captured by ISIS and how brutal, uh, brutally killed by, by, by the terrorist network. So I think uh, unmanned systems make it easier for decision makers uh, to resort to, to uh, military power, if, especially in 
hosted air spaces. Losing a robotic system and losing a, a, a pilot is not the same thing, after all. Uh, and I think, especially referring back to what you asked about Turkish military strategic culture, it gives Turkey, especially drone sales, uh, equips Turkey with a, a smart power uh, asset uh, that fosters uh, geopolitical outreach. So looking at the Tur- looking at Turkish drone sales, Ukraine, for instance, uh, it is a weapon systems that 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 the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian people are singing a, a national song after. after. Uh, the, the Azerbaijani-Turkey relations, we call them bir millet iki devlet in the Turkish language, which is one nation and two states. Uh, actually, it was the Turkish. Uh, military assistance, but I emblematically speaking, Turkish drones that that realized uh, this the sentimental uh, the sentimental nationalistic feeling into a, a military alliance. So this the, the drones are also assets of strategic outreach uh, for, for for Turkey, which is really important. That's a really interesting point um, that there's this sort of geopolitical layer to this, that the drone sales really are, um, as you said, kind of a means of, I think you said, strategic outreach uh, for Turkey. Was the genesis, not just of the TB2, but but you've mentioned the Anka as well and other unmanned systems, You know, whatever forces drove their prioritization, was the prospect of selling these systems abroad uh, a large part or were they developed mainly with a, uh, with a Turkish military use case in mind? That's an important one. So the the, the quest for uh, building a real defense industry has always been there in Turkey, and it was amplified, I think, uh, following the 1974 Cyprus campaign because Turkey faced enormous arms restrictions and embargoes, and some of those embargoes, even in the in the height of the Cold War times, came from Turkey's allies, including the United States. Uh, so. What, I think time and again, Turkey saw it. One other example is 1990s, uh, when Turkey was facing the PKK threat, uh, some of our our NATO allies, including some European nations, exercised uh, grave restrictions on on, uh, their their arms in the Turkish arsenal. And I think uh, many times, in many episodes in the course of the Republic's history, Turkish decision makers, both military and, and civilian, saw that uh, first, Turkey is not Luxembourg, it is not Belgium, it is living in a troublesome neighborhood, it is it's a NATO nation bordering Iran, Iraq, Syria, the Black Sea, the Mediterranean. Uh, it has uh, some chronic problems with another NATO ally of, of, of ours, Greece. Uh, it, 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 it faced the Soviet Union and it tied down more than 20 Soviet divisions. Uh, right after the Cold War, Turkey faced uh, a, a grave, low-intensity conflict threat uh, from the PKK. Uh, there was a time in Syria that Turkish troops were facing uh, Iran-harvested Shiite militia, including Lebanese Bullah detachments, ISIS, and PKK. So there is, you know, it is it is not your everyday threat assessment that that you are facing ISIS, Hezbollah, and and, and PKK uh, within the same battle space. And I think throughout uh, the, the history, the, the history of the republic, Turkish decision makers saw that uh, living in such a, a dangerous uh, setting, 
uh, having the, the 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 imperative, the geopolitical imperative of uh, of, of, of running a, a military deterrent, a, a real military deterrent, and fighting your wars with others' weapons, uh, especially in, in in times of political fluctuations, and when those others do not like your uh, political military stance is is a really nasty thing and i think it has always been in in the in the eyes of the turkish elite it has always been a priority to establish a real uh, what we call defense technological and industrial base uh, the 2000s i think with the, with the 2000s it is especially the 2010s we have seen the results of that that cumulative understanding and investment in Turkish defense industries, because most of the entities that uh, that I can refer right now, like Aselsan, uh, the makers of uh, uh, in, uh, makers of advanced sensors, for instance, uh, for Turkish drones, Roketsan, uh, these are the manufacturers of uh, smart munitions uh, that that you have been uh, witnessing in Ukraine, in Turkey's wars in Syria and Libya, in in, in Nagorno Karabakh by the Azerbaijan forces. All these institutions like Roketsan, Aselsan, uh, they are deep rooted in, in that thought of developing their, their institutions of decades old and they are uh, stemming from the thought of uh, establishing a real uh, defense industry, uh, a real national defense industry for Turkey. The dronization is interesting because I think dronization is, yes, there was an inclination by the Turkish industry uh, for unmanned systems, but I think uh, it, it is it is the combination of on the job training, seeing the results, feedbacks from the battleground, and and uh, you know back and forth between the end user and the industry, uh, facilitation of the the Turkish administration. I think like it is not all about the AK Party administration. It is not only about the Erdogan administration. But I can say that the Erdogan administration uh, also played its part. Uh, for uh, especially encouraging, uh, you know, the, the, the again, uh, quoting myself, like dronization of the Turkish industry and, and Turkish military. Uh, but here, just to emphasize uh, one thing, just to put emphasis on, on, on one important thing, that drones uh, used in the American way of war on terror for pinpoint operations, you know, for surgical strikes, especially targeting high-value terrorist uh, ringleaders is really different than we see drones in action in, in Turkey's wars. Because Turkey is starting from, especially starting from 2018, but especially from 2020 Operation Spring Shield, drones were used in a conventional setting. So they were used as artillery spotters, for instance, which is really interesting because, again, uh, you know, uh, Looking back to 1994-1996 Russo-Chechen wars, one of the things that Johar Dudayev did was to target, pinpoint, it was to target Russian artillery spotters. Because he knew that if he targets Russian artillery spotters effectively, it would also curb Russian artillery's combat performance. In Ukraine, we see both Turkish drones and other drones uh, doing the spotting thing for the artillery from a high altitude that cannot be reached by manpads or low-altitude air defenses, which is fostering the artillery's combat effectiveness. We saw that in Syria. We saw that in Nagorno-Karabakh. So using drones uh, 
in a different setting than the war on terror, in a different setting than surgical strikes, in a conventional setting like that, was something really, really innovative. So it is not only the system, it is also operational planning. Uh, again, like using drones against enemy air defenses was really important, especially in redefining suppression of enemy air defenses. Using drones as uh, as the main source of information warfare inputs uh, is really important. We saw that Turkey used drone footage to show that it was the PKK militants forcibly keeping the civilian population in Syria. Uh, it, we, we saw that the Azerbaijanis were showing their achievements in the battleground with drones. And now we saw that Ukrainians used Turkish drones and the Turkish drone footage uh, to counter the, the, the big Russian military might that, that, that used to be seen as invincible. Uh, and the Ukrainians showed that, no, it is, not, uh, it is not invincible and they can bleed. And it was drone footage, real-time drone footage. And I think it goes with the, with, the, with the spirit of the time, with the zeitgeist, that in the age of digital open source intelligence, drone footage also suits very well to, to that context. So it is a bit of everything. It is a bit of the conventional setting. It is a bit of using drones with, uh, with, with smart munitions against enemy air defenses. It is a bit of drones combined with uh, artillery. It is a bit of drones used as information warfare assets. So drones touching upon each and every aspect of modern warfare uh, from physical battle space uh, to, 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 uh, to the informational uh, battle space, to the infosphere, uh, from uh, land-based fire support uh, to uh, addressing the enemy's mobile air defenses. And in the Ukrainian case, lastly, uh, for hampering the, the adversaries' uh, logistical lines, which was really key uh, and vital for the Russians. And I think that played a, 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 a really critical role in uh, halting the Russian offensive, especially in the northern sector, uh, before the withdrawal from from the outskirts of Kiev. From a U.S. perspective, there's there's certainly a lot of thought being put into how drones will feature in a future conflict. Uh, but in a general sense, across the U.S. defense enterprise, you know, twenty years of history looms large in terms of how uh, how how we fundamentally perceive drones. We've seen them used extensively for precise, uh, targeted kinetic strike. Uh, we've also seen them used just as extensively as ISR platforms, uh, providing the so-called unblinking eye. What you're describing includes uh, includes both of those capabilities, but it, it feels more expansive, um, sort of a holistic perspective of drones integrated into this comprehensive network-centric architecture. That, exactly, and a battle network. Yes, yes, exactly. To me, that sounds like more than just an aircraft and a ground control station. Um, when Ukraine buys a Bayraktar, I guess, or any other country, but let's focus on Ukraine right now. Obviously, the Ukrainian military has its own set of weapons and systems that kind of form this network uh, that the drone is, in, in an ideal case, linked into. So when Ukraine buys Bayraktars, are they getting a particular set of software, um, you know, an infrastructure, really, or is it just a matter of the user, uh, Ukraine again, in this in this instance, having to kind of figure it out? Well, that's a tricky one. So I'm going to give a, a comparative answer here, uh, a comparative answer between Azerbaijan and Ukraine, drawing parallels and, and, and highlighting the differences, and also the expectations and the outcomes before and after the war. Uh, so uh, 
before the war, I was invited by the British Army to pen a, 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 an assessment of how Turkish drones can or cannot help uh, the Ukrainians in their if the war breaks out, if, if the war erupts, and it can, can it stop a uh, Russian invasion or can it help stopping the Russian invasion? Uh, so I think the part that I, 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 I was right, I predicted that, you know, the Ukrainians cannot rely on drones uh, for halting a, a Russian invasion, but they can use them as an attrition factor on the Russians. Uh, the only thing that I was not sure is that I, I know that there is a, an organic relation between the Turkish military and the Azerbaijani military. I mean, like the two armed forces have been training for for years, like decades, and we have the Azerbaijani personnel, I mean, officers who receive their training from the Turkish military institutions. Uh, we know that, that, that the Turkish uh, military diplomatic representation in Baku is really large, and they have a very busy agenda of reforming and rebuilding the Azerbaijani military. And we know that the Turkish and Azerbaijani armed forces have been uh, rehearsing that war for a long time. So I was not surprised seeing the Azerbaijani military uh, following the footsteps of, of the Turkish precedent uh, that was set in Syria, uh, being specific in terms of artillery drone complexes, uh, using drones systematically against Armenian air defenses and then paving the ground for the Azerbaijani army aviation for close air support and then moving forward with, with maneuver units and, and also equipping those maneuver units with uh, superior situational awareness compared to the adversary, again, uh, again uh, depending on drones and also, you know, advertising, if you like, the entire operation and supporting the information warfare aspect with the drone footage. So I, I the Azerbaijanis did exactly as I depicted here, and they exactly followed the footsteps of the Turkish operations in Syria, and I was not surprised by that. Uh, because the, Azer, the, the, the goal of turning the Azerbaijan armed forces into a smaller scale Turkish armed forces was actually voiced by the Azerbaijani Minister of Defense himself. Uh, so it, I, I was not surprised. What, I, what I'm surprised right now is the Ukrainian military's performance with drones because I have I witnessed with all open source intelligence input that they have not that they are not using drones for you know pinpoint targeting of targets of opportunities, but also I see that that magical connection between drones and land -based, land based fire support units in the Ukrainian case. I see I, I witnessed even some. Uh, some novel aspects of drone warfare, like uh, systematically targeting uh, the Russian uh, logistic systems, like uh, prior prioritizing the bread truck uh, or the fuel tanker over the tank itself, uh, so to speak. So they, they went really innovative with the uh, Turkish drones. Uh, that, that, that was surprising. When it comes to more technical aspects of, of your question, so we are not talking only about you know artillery spotters and artillery and, and, and some radio communication we are talking about data links we are talking about data links in the face of russia's formidable electronic warfare uh, architecture although we have not seen that that formidable electronic warfare architecture working miracles in ukraine at least theoretically speaking we were expecting the, the russians to to be very effective in the electromagnetic spectrum uh, 
we are talking about ground control units. These drones are not rotary wing assets. I mean, Bayraktar TB2. So they rely on runways and they rely on facilities. So we are talking about a, a complex, actually, facilitating all these operations from runways to, to storages, uh, to operators themselves on the ground stations and ongoing training and everything. Uh, I can touch upon some particular issues here. The, the first thing is within, within the very limits of open source information, we saw that that piston engine, very slow moving drones like Bayraktar TB2 uh, are are making real troubles for Russian air defenses, especially due to the ground clutter factor and rendering moving MTIs like moving target uh, indicators. Uh, I, I wouldn't say abortive, but, uh, but, but rendering them less effective than expected uh, to, to, uh, to a considerable uh, extent, I would say. Uh, especially we have seen that in, in time and again in Libya, in Syria, in Nagorno-Karabakh, but this is the first time that these drones are being tested not only against Russian systems, but also against Russian systems in the hands of the Russian military. And the Russian military's elites, like the first guard, uh, guards tank army, like the 20th Combined, Arm, uh, Arm, uh, combined Arms Army, uh, like the uh, VDV, uh, Russian Airborne Troops and Russian Naval Infantry. So across the spectrum, in, in the hands of the elite of the Russian armed forces, we are seeing that Turkish drones are perf- performing not bad at all. Uh, this is this is important. And again, like it boils down, I think I, I wouldn't want to reduce everything into the simpler stance of ground clutter here. But we, we did, and I, I published that, uh, I published that in a piece for Jamestown Foundation, that these systems now we, we, we suspect and we have really tangible grounds to suspect that Russian systems, including Tor M2s, including Panzer S1s, I'm taking the liberty of going into details because this is a West Point podcast after all. So these systems that are optimized for hunting down drones, actually, they have uh, they have certain uh, disadvantages, handicaps, uh, especially against piston engine, slow moving uh, platforms, uh, and identifying them amidst the ground clutter first. Secondly, most of these drones are using the C-band uh, for their data links. We know by open source information. And we know that the principal uh, Russian electronic warfare systems like Krasuka 4, like uh, Borisoglevsk, uh, they are uh, not optimized for operating along the C-band. So I'm sure that the Russians have were, and some we know, like Sapsan Convoy, Specific, specific targeting uh, SATCOM uh, communications of, of, of these systems. But principal Russian electronic warfare systems are actually uh, giving some, some gaps in the, in the electromagnetic spectrum that uh, Turkish drones uh, data link configuration capitalizes on. This is, I think, also important. Uh, most of the Russian systems are optimized for uh, targeting, I mean, like both uh, air defenses and electronic warfare systems uh, are designed, they have, they have a design philosophy uh, to intercept manned Western aircraft in a bonanza with, with, with NATO forces. So I think taking advantage of being the late cover in, 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 that, 
in that segment. Turkish drones are also capitalizing on some uh, some loopholes, if you like, in in the in the military technical uh, sphere. Uh, also, one thing, and, and, and lastly, that I, I want to touch upon is that although we are talking about Bayraktar TB2s right now, uh, and and you mentioned a, a very interesting, uh, you mentioned a very interesting butcher's list, if you like, uh, ranging from Raptor petrol boats to uh, Scott launchers in Karabakh. Uh, to Panzer and Tor M2 uh, air defense systems, to Russian artillery, uh, so on, so on. Uh, this is not the golden age of Turkish drone systems because both Bayraktar and Tusash uh, are coming with uh, higher-end systems. And these higher-end systems will have a larger and more sophisticated and advanced uh, payload, both in terms of munitions but also uh, sensors, uh, so we we are, I think, uh, yet to witness uh, the heights or the, the peak of uh, Turkish drone warfare capacity. You know, one of the things that I think is most striking to uh, to a lot of people is the price. I don't I don't know if it's been publicly disclosed, but there are some I think pretty credible estimates that put the figure at somewhere between you know one and and five million dollars a piece. Let's say single digit million dollars per right. Company. Right, yeah. just a few million dollars. Exactly. Meanwhile, and granted, some of the U.S. produced drones that do similar missions are in are in a different category in terms of size, operating altitude, what have you. But when you compare the TB2 to those systems, we're talking orders of magnitude difference sometimes in terms of the cost of procuring one. Do you think that um, that that then you know that that this particular Turkish drone maybe signals a new era in which large fixed-wing unmanned platforms with both ISR and strike capabilities are are accessible to a growing number of states. But I, I like the expression of calling Bayraktar TB2s as the flying Kalashnikov, the flying AK-47 of, of drones. Uh, easy to maintain, easy to operate. Uh, you don't need a, a huge defense economics uh, or infrastructure to operate those. And compared to many Western nations, uh, I know that the U.S. defense industry is not happy with, uh, with especially in the drone segment, the U.S. defense industry is not happy with the uh, with the arms sales policy, actually. We, like, talking about a particular example, for instance, U.S. dominates the Saudi weapons market. Uh, but we have seen that particularly drone segment is snatched up by the Chinese. Uh, so I, I, I know that your industry is not happy with that. Uh, Turkey is a generous uh, arms supplier. Uh, the, 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 the Turkish parliament is not U.S. Congress. Uh, Turkish presidency, especially under President Erdogan, is generous in uh, uh, arms sales. Uh, and Turkey is actually encouraging arms sales. Look at for instance, like for, for a particular case, look at the Turkish, uh, look at the Turkish uh, the Anka sale to Tunisia. So the Tunisians were interested with the system, and then they could not afford it, uh, and then Turkey provided loans uh, for the procurement. Uh, then they couldn't still uh, afford it, and Turkey provided even you know uh, more beneficial loans, like easier, more flexible conditions, and and. and uh, really lucrative exit bank uh, credits uh, and Turkey did everything for the Tunisians uh, to, to make Tunisians procure that drone because the first priority is to have Turkish drones in the Tunisian uh, arsenal 
and after Libya having a second foothold in the North African weapons market, especially for Turkish drones. Okay, uh, this is really important. Uh, now Turkey recently granted uh, co-production ventures as well. Ukraine was the first nation, Azerbaijan followed Suez. Uh, so I think it is not only the Turkey solutions, yes, single-digit numbers, especially for Bayraktar TB2, is important. Uh, Turkish drones, uh, it is not like the Russian arms, like you buy the drone, and the sustainability uh, of the defense sector and its ability to, to, to just sustain their services is also high, not only for the manufacturers, but also uh, for uh, subsystems and munitions manufacturers as well. Uh, the, the political uh, restrictions are uh, less uh, compared to American and, and Western European options. So uh, Turkey made a good uh, arms seller, uh, actually. And uh, they, the, the Turkish solutions, specifically talking about Bayraktar TB2, because of uh, Turkey's geopolitical imperatives and that nasty geographic setting, uh, it, I think, worked for a, a positive in, in the segment. Turkish Armed Forces is a war-fighting entity. Uh, and again, as I said, it, it faced some really dangerous adversaries like PKK, like ISIS, uh, like Iran harvested Shia, militia in Syria. Uh, and, and that combat record of Turkish systems is really important. Uh, you know, in arms sales, the combat record of your solution is one of the biggest advertisement assets that, that you could be uh, proud with. Uh, so I think all, all combining into the, into the, the same, uh, same outcome that if you buy Turkish arms, you wouldn't regret. The Ukrainians did not regret. The Azerbaijanis did not regret. And drones make the, the crown jewelry of, of that because you are investing in a high-tech system. And talking about Bayraktar TB2, you are investing in a high-tech system by paying single-digit uh, million US dollars uh, per unit. Uh, this, is, uh, th this is really good. But when it comes to the, the larger defense economics and defense technologies question that you pointed out, to, is it the future of drone warfare? I would say it depends, the short answer. The, the longer answer is, now we are talking about Bayraktar TB2, uh, single-digit millions of dollars we are talking about, and it is a very affordable system, uh, flying Kalashnikov, flying AK-47. Uh, it, it worked in Karabakh, it worked in uh, Ukraine, but, for instance, we, we, we have other systems now entering uh, into the Turkish military's arsenal, take Aksungur of Tusash. It's a very interesting system. The Turkish Navy now operates that, and the planned uh, combat payload configuration for the drone uh, includes magnetic anomaly detectors, magnetic anomaly detectors, the MAT system, and sonobots, which are optimized for anti-submarine warfare. So can you imagine that, that the Turkish Navy and Turkish industry are planning to delegate some of the maritime patrol and anti-submarine warfare missions to unmanned platforms, okay? That platform's unit cost uh, with uh, the, the planned combat uh, payload configuration is of course larger than Bayraktar TB2. And I don't think Turkey would have the same laissez-faire, laissez-passer approach like you can buy them all approach when it comes to Aksungur. There will be a special exports clientele uh, for that. Take Akınca, for instance. Akınca is the a recent solution by uh, Baikar, the makers of uh, Bayraktar TB2. 
Uh, and Akinji will have, again, a very interesting uh, planned combat payload configuration, including uh, an indigenous cruise missile, an air launch cruise missile with uh, an effective combat range of more than 200 kilometers. So it is a deep strike asset. So delegating some of the, uh, with a very good CEP, by the way, so it's a very accurate system. Uh, it has an effective range more than 200 kilometers. And uh, theoretically speaking, Akinji can fly with that. Uh, and Akinji recently, with the recent engine configuration, uh, it, it, it was a high-end mail system, medium altitude low entrance system. But I think it sold the, 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 the maximum flight altitude ceiling of 40,000 feet. Uh, so it is just in, in the border or becoming a high altitude, long endurance system. So having a, a drone with 40,000 feet maximum altitude or beyond 40,000 feet maximum altitude, its plant uh, configuration, sensor configuration also includes an active electronically uh, 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 phase array radar, uh, scan array radar and ISA radar. Uh, and if you equip that beast with an air launch cruise missile uh, for deep strike missions, now that's something. Uh, we know that Ukraine became the first customer of that system. Probably Azerbaijan will follow suit too. But again, the unit cost will be larger. It will be a more costly system. And I don't think Turkey will be again, like everybody can come and buy Akinci as we sold Bayraktar TB2 for that. So Kızılelma, uh, for instance, Muse, like Baikar came with another solution uh, that will not be a conventional drone with a long endurance, but it will be a turbofan engine drone in the transonic speed line uh, that can that can function as a, a, a loyal wingman uh, for high-end manned aircraft. Uh, so as the solutions become more complicated, I think the price tag the price tag will go inevitably higher and the concepts of operations that these systems could offer would be more, I wouldn't want to say advanced different or advanced or more efficient, but different, categorically different than what we have witnessed with Bayraktar TB2. So I think we are talking about a broad array of system and in, in the final sentence, it is not only limited to area uh, solutions. For instance, Turkey is running a an unmanned uh, land warfare uh, combatants program. Uh, the Turkish uh, naval uh, surface combatant ULAK is in the Turkish Navy's arsenal right now. And it is, I, as far as I know, if I'm not mistaken, it is the first unmanned uh, surface uh, combatant that, uh, that fired laser-guided missiles in a live fire exercise. Uh, and the target acquisition was done by Bayraktar TB2, by the way, in that very exercise. So Bayraktar TB2 queued uh, target information to a surface combatant, uh, an unmanned surface combatant, that for the first time fired laser-guided uh, laser munitions uh, onto a target in a live-fire exercise. So I think we are, we, are, we are more talking about a battle network here with different price tags, with different arms sales uh, restrictions or flexibilities and different concepts of operations that would be enabled by this variety of, of solutions and by the combination of them. I want to uh, maybe wrap up by circling back to something that we talked about earlier, uh, the 
the geopolitical layer of this, um, but with maybe a slightly different spin on it. You know, what's happening in Ukraine is 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 extraordinary because, to the best of my knowledge, there's not really a good historical model for it. We have Ukraine being supported by by NATO countries, uh, by a lot of countries, um, but you know, in particular, uh, for the sake of this question, by NATO countries. But because Ukraine itself isn't a NATO member, uh, that support is coming unilaterally from each of those countries. Uh, and and as I'm sure you're aware, that's not that's not something that's just happening right now during the active combat phase, uh, training missions for years in Ukraine from the likes of the United States, the UK, uh, Canada. All of these have been unilateral missions, um, you know, since they since they began. However, since the invasion, that support, uh, the form of the support, you know, has shifted from things like training to more exclusively material support. And what that looks like coming from each country is. Uh, is is different, sometimes very different. From Turkey, obviously, these drones are a centerpiece. So I have sort of two questions uh, related to that. First, is Turkey being, I, I don't want to say pressured, is, is, is Turkey being encouraged by, by, say, other NATO members? And we don't need to specify uh, which ones necessarily, but uh, is Turkey being encouraged to provide more of these systems or... Um, or maybe to do so quickly. And second, um, you know, Turkey's relationship with NATO is sometimes characterized as maybe a little bit more difficult than that of other NATO members. I, I you know, I think that characterization is perhaps sometimes unfair. Uh, certainly for listeners who heard the episode I recorded with Ben Hodges, uh, retired general and former commander of, of, of U.S. Army Europe, that characterization, as he described, sometimes fails to take into consideration some of the unique challenges Turkey faces, uh, not least by virtue of, of, of geography. Nonetheless, I think that characterization was especially common after Turkey agreed to buy the, the S-400 air defense system from Russia. Is the effectiveness of the TB2 in Ukraine today maybe um, reflecting positively on Turkey in a way that is you know, perhaps smoothing out any rifts in the relationship with the alliance as a whole, and and you know, if if indeed those rifts do or have existed. So, starting from your last question, I I think uh, you know, personally, and also representing the defense program that I have been chairing for years with Adam, uh, I have the comfort of the. Uh, because I'm going to give an interesting answer to that, I, I have the comfort of having objected Turkey's procurement of the S-400 for technical and political reasons. I predicted that Turkey would be exposed to cuts a country in America's adversaries through sanctions at, uh, sanctions if it goes with the S-400. I predicted before the, the procurement took place, I predicted that, and I warned the decision makers that Turkey would never ever be able to uh, operate the S-400 in a network-centric architecture and the S-400 in uh, out of a network-centric uh, uh, architecture uh, operated in a standalone fashion would be much less effective. And even seeing in Ukraine, we see that those strategic sound systems combat effectiveness is really debatable right now, given their, uh, their, uh, their combat performance in Ukraine. Uh, I also want uh, Turkish decision makers through my uh, uh, writings, through my publications, that if Turkey procures the S-400, it would cost Turkey the F-35, which is not on, which which is not a which was not an off-the-shelf 
uh, acquisition for the Turkish Air Force, but a, a, a very high-end defense technological powerhouse project that many Turkish firms uh, were uh, were taking part uh, within the framework of hundreds of million dollars portfolio. So it was it was real the real deal for Turkey, and it was the real uh, lift up uh, opportunity for the Turkish Air Force and the Turkish uh, fifth generation air warfare capacity in, in general. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from the very ground that I objected the S-400 procurement. Why I'm saying that? Because I also, when, when I was addressing NATO uh, colleagues of mine, uh, I, I, I was a fellow with NATO Defense College. I published many articles for the college and I also uh, take part in, in different NATO settings. I said the S-400 was a mistake. But reducing every single thing about Turkey and Turkey's NATO identity and, and Turkey's contributions to the alliance into the simpler stance of the S-400 procurement would be equally blind, would be equally uh, flawed analytically. Uh, it, it misses the fact that Turkey was a framework nation for NATO's uh, very high readiness joint task force, the, 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 the principal, uh, the, the principal uh, reaction force against hybrid threats. Uh, Turkey flew uh, air policing uh, operations for NATO, including the one in Poland, I mean, like up until last year. And right now the framework nation is France for BGTF, but had the Russians started their operations, uh, say in 2021, uh, it would have been Turkey uh, who would uh, initiated the VGTF, who activated the VGTF and, pioneer, uh, and pioneering the, the, the NATO's uh, 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 reaction uh, to to the to the Russian aggression uh, at the uh, eastern doorstep. Uh, so we can talk about many other examples. Uh, I mean, like I I recently uh, concluding a book chapter uh, about Turkey's uh, uh, contribution to NATO, and I did a statistical work. Uh, in that statistical work, I found out that brace for impact. I found out that. The majority of NATO nations are outmanned by solely Russian airborne troops, which is 45,000 men. And again, brace for even a bigger impact. There is only two. There are only two nations within the NATO alliance that can outman their entire armed forces. Outman Russia's only Western military district, which is the United States and Turkey. Only the United States armed forces and the Turkish armed forces outman just one single military district of the armed forces of the Russian Federation. And I, I, I recall here again, and I'm gonna quote George Friedman, uh, once asked about his ideas about NATO's defense economics calculus, you know, the famous 2% and the 20% respectively, very bluntly, and I think also very honestly, he said, I, I don't care if you spend 2%, 5% or 1% of your GDP to, 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 to defense, how many warfighting capable divisions can you bring if it comes to that uh, for, for NATO, because NATO, after all, is a military alliance. And unfortunately, I wouldn't say some, I would say even most, most, most of our allied nations do not have real military capabilities. And in Ukraine, we saw it is not your you know, diplomatic rhetoric uh, or your political gestures, but it comes, it, it boils down to your artillery, your armor, your anti-tank guided missiles, and, and so on that can stop uh, and armed aggression. And I think Ukraine, uh, again, reminded us that we live in a, in, a, in a dangerous world. 
and in dangerous in a dangerous world, you need allies with real military capabilities like Turkey. So reducing every single thing about Turkey's NATO identity and NATO contribution into the wrong and flawed S-400 procurement decision is itself flawed, I think. Do drones and, and the Turkish-Ukrainian defense relations play a part in that? I do think so, because I recall right after uh, the, the Karabakh war, uh, I, I, I wouldn't refrain from naming it, our uh, Canadian allies uh, exercised some, uh, some uh, subsystem uh, restrictions on uh, Turkey's uh, Bayraktar TB2 settings, particularly speaking, its sensor system. But now we see that our allies that have been criticizing Turkish drone transactions, especially TB2 transactions with Azerbaijan, are happy and encouraging and demanding even more transactions uh, with uh, with Ukraine. And I, I always give that example during the uh, Cold War times, we didn't have the, the United States and the Soviet Union directly uh, coming tete-a-tete to each other. Uh, but we have seen the Arab-Israeli wars and through Arab-Israeli wars, we had a comparative idea about the warfighting performance of Western and Soviet weaponry where we had uh, two, two belligerents, two sides uh, using them respectively. I think Karabakh, uh, Libya, Syria, and now Ukraine show a comparative analysis of Turkish drone warfare systems in a broader network uh, versus Soviet Russian weaponry, and I think the results are, are promising. So everything is not about the S-400. When it comes to the, the first part of your question, specifically about Ukraine, uh, well, I think Turkey did it best, uh, not only as for drones. Like After Crimea 2014, Ukraine lost the bulk of its naval capability, and Turkey played a, a, a really huge role in rebuilding the Ukrainian Navy, the indigenous medium class corvettes. Uh, two, well, I think if I'm not mistaken, at least two will be produced in the Ukrainian soil. And I pray that the Ukrainians would not lose their uh, Black Sea uh, window uh, with Odessa. Uh, so rebuilding the Ukrainian Navy was, uh, uh, you know, and still has been a very important task. Uh, Ukraine, as I said, is the first nation that Turkey granted a co-production for its drones. And that co-production deal was signed amidst the, the Russian build-up. You had an, an excellent podcast with my good friend uh, Mike Kaufman uh, before the war covering uh, the Russian build-up. And at the peak of that build-up, before the war erupted, but it was imminent that, that we, saw, we saw it coming, Turkish president uh, visited Kiev and signed the co-production deal when the Russian army was at Ukraine's doorstep. I think it speaks for it, it speaks for itself. And during the war, uh, Turkish press, uh, including Davis Sabah, which is very close to government circles in Turkey, uh, they released news stories that Turkey resupplied uh, Ukraine with uh, with drones when the war is ongoing. Although we do not have an official explanation. Uh, in this respect, we have the Turkish uh, press and especially the pro-government press uh, uh, speaking about that. So I think that happened, uh, depending on the Dale Sava uh, news story. Uh, so I, 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 and also let's let us not forget that uh, Turkey uh, invoked Article 19 of the Montreux Convention and banned all the belligerent parties, vessels uh, back and forth from the Black Sea unless they are Black Sea home ported. And even if they are Black Sea home ported, they can enter the Black Sea 
and if they exit, that's all. So the, the Ukrainians do not have a navy. We know that. Uh, and it is really crippling the Russian operations, not in Ukraine, but the Syrian Express, back and forth between the Black Sea and, and Tartus in, in Syria. And very recently, Turkey also closed its airspace to military or commercial Russian flights if they are carrying military personnel uh, to Syria. And we saw that the, that, uh, the, 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 the Turkish Foreign Office remains the one and only uh, foreign mission right now within NATO that can talk to both parties uh, when still arming Ukraine. Uh, I, I think these are positive developments. These are positive developments highlighting Turkey's importance as a special NATO nation within the alliance. Again, as I said, does it baptize the, the S-400 procurement decision? I don't think so. I think it was one of the most flawed and worst decisions in the republic in, in the republic's history. But again, Turkey and the importance of Turkey for NATO cannot be reduced down to the very, very simpler and deterministic stance of the S-400 case. Turkey is more than the S-400. And I think that that ends with the S-400. I do not see a future for the Turkish-Russian defense transactions, especially after Ukraine. That was a one single incident of off-the-shelf procurement. That's all. I don't see a second batch entering the Turkish soil, let alone any other Russian weapon system. Well, John, I think we are going to leave it there, even though I'm, I'm sure we could continue, uh, uh, frankly, a very fascinating conversation for, for quite a bit longer. You know, as I mentioned to you when we were chatting before we started recording, I'm sure at this point, uh, you know, most people, if not everybody, you know, most people have heard of the Bayraktar. Uh, they're aware that, you know, that it's a drone that has been used very effectively in Ukraine. Um, but I do think that all of this context kind of helps us to understand this system in particular a little bit better. But also provide, you know, the context sort of provides a framework as well to be able to kind of watch the news about this particular drone being used in Ukraine and, you know, almost to project forward and, and develop maybe a little more precision as we as we uh, as we try to forecast really how, how drones will feature uh, on the future battlefield as well. So, John, thank you. Uh, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again.